Hello! Welcome back to This Is Not A History Lecture. And today we have some guests in the audience. Yes, we do. Very important guest, one in particular, aka my favorite creature on this planet. Yes, my dogs. Are <laughs> well, my grandmother's dog and my family's dog. They uh, went somewhere this weekend and instead of boarding them, because Oliver, our family dog, is Oliver. very, very nervous and anxious. Uh, they didn't want to board him, so I took him for the weekend. My parents came through and dropped him off. Y'all, this dog, I, I, this is the one thing, one reason why I'm like, mm, this sucks that this is an audio medium, because this dog... Needs to be seen by the world. He needs to be shared with the world. Kaylee has feelings about this dog. I love Oliver so much. First of all, he's like, what an alien would think is a Cocker Spaniel. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He's like balding. He's got like one bug eye. Yeah, one eye's better than the other. He has like four teeth, maybe six teeth left. Oh um, his sides are bald though, and his top is like Donald Trump's toupee. So yeah. it's like really bad. It's just, it's awful. Um, but it's we so don't want to cut any of it or groom him because then he won't have any warmth in the winter. He's like bald, and part of his fur is like really curly, and then part of it is like straight, and he's just such a weird little dude. Yeah, and like his jaw is actually kind of sideways, so it doesn't like oh close correctly. Yeah, I can't explain to you. Literally, the first time I met this dog, Cat will say, I like yelled. She <laughs> screamed. Who is this? I just, uh, then, I'm like Kaylee's, kind of tearing up thinking about it. He's so amazing. Yeah, and Kaylee's just waited her whole, uh, that's what she does. Nothing else matters. Just the, in, there's just Oliver and in between Oliver. Yes, that's <laughs> what my life has become. I literally, when Kat told me that uh, she was watching the dogs this weekend, I was like, I, I think I screamed did. again. You did, you did, you screamed. <laughs> I was like, what? Because I thought I'd never see him again. Oliver. Yeah. Reunited. So I forced Kat to bring the dogs over to my house. I mean, you had a fire pit. That's true. That is the development of the week for me, isn't it? Uh, Me and my roommate found a fire pit on Facebook Marketplace for $25. And it's huge. It's nice. It's nice. The mosquitoes Um, murdered us. But at least we didn't die by fire. We died by mosquitoes. Yeah. Well, worth it. But... Um, so since I, we have a backyard, I was like, yeah, bring the dogs. Also, we have a fire pit now. Um, so yeah. you're, you're going to stay here for as long as, as long as yeah. I'll, I'll <laughs> what? Oh my God. <laughs> but yeah. So words, Kaylee, come on. <laughs> yeah. We have dogs here today. I took off their collars so that you wouldn't hear them rattling or scratching or anything. Mm, but, but if um, they do bark, just know that that is, yeah, I'll allow Oliver to have his voice on this podcast. He yeah. deserves it. That's him and now. That's him scratching. Literally, wow. Wow, like on, like on cue. That was. Oh, now he's looking at me. Hi. I'm snorting. <laughs> Hi, Ollie. Oh, here they come. Oh, now you like me. He didn't. He, he decided he didn't like he's, me on Friday. I think he finally got comfortable yeah. here because yesterday when Lane was here doing homework, she like they actually came up to her and I was like, Aww. oh, Joey's friendly. Ollie's scared of everything. Well, Ollie's letting me pet him. Aww. God, y'all, this dog. Oh, my God, what a king. And I already have a weird little dog. Yeah. Like, Kitty is a freaking weirdo. So, like, yeah, the fact that there's a guy weirder than Kitty. It's saints. Immaculate. Yeah. <laughs> Oliver's really hanging in there. He's also got, like, really round sides. He's oh got like, a little pot belly. So, oh he lays god. down, he oh looks like a mushroom. God. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. How was, how, was, how was your week, Kat? Well, you, uh, I mean, everyone just found out how my week was, which yeah. was, was amazing because I have a fire pit and, and Oliver's here. So, Oliver, yeah. And there, nothing could be better, honestly. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, no, my week was pretty standard. I was Oliver going to hide under a table again? I don't King. know. Um, but yeah, no, mine was pretty standard. Uh, just work. I feel like something big happened this week and I cannot remember what it was. So. I mean, I also kind of feel like that, but the biggest thing was when we had the paper due. Yeah, that's probably what it was. I'm getting school First paper of the semester. Life. Yeah, school yeah. and personal life just gets mixed up at this point. I don't remember what's what, but yeah. no, we had a... Had a good weekend, good day at work, crazy day at work, but good day at work, and now I'm here and we're going to get food afterwards. Hey, that's always a plus. I'm very excited. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, I mean, today was very uneventful for me, just yeah. doing notes and Which is sometimes out. good, because we have yeah. an annotated bibliography due Tuesday that the teacher has given us no specifications <laughs> for whatsoever. Yeah, no, I mean, that's very frustrating. Oh, the dogs are good. Uh, Joey was just exploring a little too much into my historic clothing. Oliver. And then when Oliver sits down, he sits, like, so erect. He's so, like, stately. Oh, you This miss- dog. He lays like a chicken wing sometimes. Like, all four <sighs> limbs splayed out because he tries to cool down. No, he doesn't. Yeah. <gasps> He'll literally lay down like a starfish on the cold floors. Oliver, please. Please do it now. Sometimes he sits and his back legs disappear because his belly is so big. And he just looks like... Y'all, I love this dog. This dog looks like Henry VIII, but like later in life. <laughs> you know, if like you at, upload... like around like wife six. Yeah, yeah. If you can upload pictures to the Spotify, like you're talking about. Earlier, yeah, I saw so another podcast do that, but I'm not sure how to do it. Okay, well we'll take. Um, pictures we'll have to of look into it. Yeah. If we ever figure it out, we will. Or we upload... can just tweet. We can just tweet oh, yeah. about him. Official podcast mascot. It's Oliver. It is Oliver. He looks like the dog from Anxious Charlie's Bagels in Austin, though. So I don't know if we can mascot him. What? There's a bagel place in Austin called Anxious Charlie's or Nervous Charlie? No, Anxious Charlie's. I don't know that. But my sisters liked it a lot, and they brought home like two dozen bagels mm. from there once. And I do like bagels. And it looks like Oliver on the t-shirt. That's amazing. Oh my god, Oliver. Yeah. So. Mm. Anyway, anyway, enough yeah. about the dog, I guess. Yeah, we can. I'm taking the dog. Dumbass. <laughs> I love Legally Blonde. I was literally thinking about watching it. I love Legally Blonde, too. We made made my dad and my grandma watch it not long ago, and my dad called every single thing that was going to happen. I was like, how do you predict this so well? People who can do that, I'm like... Because I'm having my roommate watch... I'm having my roommate roommate watch The Good Place. Oh. And she's like... She hasn't figured out the big plot twist at the end of season one. Yeah. But she's like almost there. And I'm like... Just watch the show. Um, you can't say that because that time I tried to watch Far From the Madding Crowd. Okay, listen, you, I know. I'm you sorry. Destroyed that. that I'm was... sorry. Okay, I was. Listen. You were like, is he coming back from the dead? And you were all like, none of them were correct. You just kept guessing, and they got substantially worse. <laughs> listen. Okay, I was having a good time. I'm sorry. It was annoying. I understand that, but that's part of my personality, I guess. This is why. I, Harry I'm Morgan very careful queen, about who I watch movies with. That's for fair, the first but really, you, you could have stopped after the one where you guessed that they were all zombies. Because <laughs> it just got worse from there. It was a period piece film, Kaylee. It was not Listen, five God, okay. and zombies. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay, I would be willing to watch that movie again. Okay. Was it a bad movie? No. Was I just not in the right mental space? That's fair. We were it? with yes. friends who we hadn't seen in a long time. Yeah, so it was so... like now or never. And yeah. Kat knows that if I'm to watch a movie for the first time, yes. I need at least 24 hours yes. beforehand. Yes, um, she does. And I, it's just how my brain works. That's fine. Undiagnosed ADHD? Probably. <laughs> Have you seen that TikTok audio that's like, I don't know what HD is, but my doctor just called this and I got 80 of them. Oh, wait. Yep. 
That's me. That's my life. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. Obviously, you can tell we're in a little bit better headspace than usual. We're not drained and yeah, no. awfully disgust. disgust. Uh, not not so far. Not so yeah. far. We do have, like Kat said, that annotated bib and presentations this week. So that's going to be weird. Oof. So we'll see how we're feeling next Sunday when we record. Oh, but that's in- what was big. Ballet this week. Ballet. That's what yeah. happened. Okay, quick disclaimer, guys. Um, Not disclaimer. Quick update. It's going great. And that's that's the update. Did you, okay, so you just had your one rehearsal, right? Or did you have another one? We had, like, yeah, like, our assessment rehearsal. Okay. So, like, we had, like, our, everyone was that's there. That's, like, when there was, like, yeah. all those kids there? Like, everyone was that's there. So and they were fun. all so talented. And I was, like, yay. We that's have so, talented, like, we have so many so talented good. people that are here. And yeah. I don't have to do a solo because I am not qualified to do a solo, so they can do That's a solo. That's so exciting. No, um, so so y'all know, Kat had, she started the ballet club here on campus with another girl. Mm-hmm. And for their for, for y'all's first rehearsal, I guess you're calling them? Yeah. Um, meeting, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she had 30 girls turn up. Like, That's, like new girls. Like and new. And then they returning. That's such a huge turnout for a student org. Yeah, like, that really is. Especially for one that's only a couple years old and we haven't yeah. been able to meet the last two years. Because of COVID and yeah. other BS stuff. Yeah. yeah. So it was it was huge. We were so excited. So. Yeah, that's really exciting. That's what big happened to me this year and this week. Yeah. Yeah. That nuts, that's so. super great. Hopefully nice. next week when we chat too. It'll be even even more even more good news even on better. the ballet front. Yes. Yeah. In the meantime, shall we discuss um, what we're discussing today? We have two history. very like kind of textbook style history yeah. topics today. Yeah. Like stuff you would get in a textbook. Mm-hmm. So Which it's gonna I've be. I've noticed. I mean, I, I think our description is like the weird, the odd, the forgotten, and the sometimes. But yeah, but we want to talk yeah, about we like, textbook talk about... issues too, because yes. they're very important. And especially for our American listeners, I think that a lot of stuff in like uh, Hispanic or like Mexican American Heritage Month, like we know what it is. Mm-hmm. You don't know the details. Yeah, so exactly. I think that like it's good to cover those textbook issues this time around, because mm-hmm. this, the one I'm doing for sure is one that like I knew peripherally, but I didn't understand. Yeah, I'm excited to, because I mean, like you said, like you kind of know the big things, but not Mm -hmm. anything else. So I'm excited to hear about yours. It'll be be good. Yeah, I'd like to, you know, it feels good to remediate some of like, I know I missed this in my education and I kind of always felt bad and didn't want to like ask it again later. Mm -hmm. So I hope that for some people we can offer that like, oh, okay, yeah, this is actually what it is. Yeah, even if it just provides context to like, yeah. Well, you're talking about World War Two, so like, mm-hmm. you know, even just some more context to like what was happening globally yeah. with World War Two, it'll be good. Exactly. Um. So I'm excited to hear. And about yours it. is a controversial, especially the last few years. It's become a very talked about issue because yes. I was taught that through a very Americanized lens. Well, not just Americanized, but Texan. Yeah, Texanite. So we're gonna get into it, and hopefully, I don't. Um, end up having the entire state of Texas hate, hate me. Maybe just half. Kaylee, I think most of the state of Texas hates itself right now. Well, so... that's the half that I don't want to hate me. Oh, I see. I see. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Well, anyway, take it away, Kat. Take it away, Hearn. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, real fast. Someone pointed out that the guy in Ever After, like the Drew Barrymore Cinderella movie, yeah. her friend Gustav... Uh huh. That's Stan Shuntpike in the in the Night Bus in the Harry Potter movies. Is it really? Apparently. That's so funny. I know, oh my yes, god. I know. Um. No. Anyway. Take it away, Ernie. Little yes. little fun fact. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm going to talk today about Mexico in World War II, and I think we know that there is a long and 
sometimes tense, strenuous history with America. Well, I should say the United States of America and Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a large history of Mexico supporting the United States, even like just in general, like Latinx people um, have fought in conflicts from the American Revolution all the way up until Afghanistan a few weeks ago. Like, mm-hmm. this is in. I think a lot of Americans have this, like, perception about immigration from Mexico. Yeah. And this is a big thing if you grew up in Texas, especially, where there actually is a border. Like, there is a lot of... How do, how do you say, like, false... There's a lot of false narratives about the... Not yeah, just, like, it, yeah. immigrants, but just the history of Mexico uh-huh. aiding America. Because it is... It is a relationship that we have taken advantage of, and in my opinion, we haven't really reciprocated back to them in the way mm-hmm. that they deserve. Um, but we'll get into that. And I should note that in World War II, other than Brazil, Mexico is the only Latin American country that actually fought against the Axis powers. So it is a bit of a misnomer, like not misnomer, but um, a unique circumstance to talk about mm-hmm. Mexico in World War II. So in World War II, Mexico itself is coming out of the Mexican Revolution, which means there's still, like, a lot of turmoil and a lot of people had died and were still affected by the conflict. It does not help that the Great Depression was um, still creating issues for everyone. Um, And you can't talk about the 20th century events between Mexico and America without talking about the 19th century events. A lot of that has to do with the Mexican-American War. Um, Mm -hmm. That is the most notable early event. It's known to them, I didn't know this, as the North American Invasion. Interesting. And I was like, well, Like, that's how Mexico refers to it? Yeah. Interesting. It 100% fits. Yeah. 1846 to 1848, uh, James K. Polk was the president, and he, if, you you gotta love that American manifest destiny. Um, Yeah believed that you know the it's their god given yeah that god given <laughs> right to um spread their way across the continent all the way to the pacific ocean and that meant going through mexican territory and it started as a fight along the rio grande and america had some military advantages and also you know when you're basically sneak attacked out of nowhere you don't <laughs> have a lot of time to prepare and eventually this war whether you call it Mexican-American War, I'm tempted to call it the North American Invasion myself because it was not our land. Um, And it basically takes a third, a third to like a little less than a half of the territory that Mexico previously held. That's how we got California, Utah, Mm -hmm. New Mexico, Nevada, Arizona, like all of that land Mm -hmm. was from this. And, um, you know, like those old maps where you see Texas just kind of being like the stop line. All that side was what we got basically mm-hmm. out of it. And I mean, the Mexican Revolution I mentioned earlier, we're definitely gonna have to do an episode on that. But this war itself, the Mexican American War, the Mexican Revolution, that one. Yeah. And the North American invasion, I'm definitely gonna have to do as its own whole topic because that's yeah. huge. And I didn't realize that like That'll be I <laughs> That's going to be, have to be part of, like, a probably, like, three or four episode long series of the Civil War. Because that yeah. is such a key. I don't like the Civil War. 
That is going to be such a big, because there's so much that goes into the Civil War, so it's going to be huge to cover that. But I, I think it's all of it is worth covering, which is why we well, are going to have to like take our time. Well, I want to something separate from the Civil War to talk about the Mexican-American War. Well, no, I would then. I would say that you would do like one episode in that series about oh, yeah. the Me- Mexican-American War because all that land directly leads to, to is a it, huge cause like a in the Civil War. Prerequisite to the war starting. Yeah, yeah. I get what you're saying. Okay, yeah. yeah. So it would be like part of that series, just like in history. Yeah, the like timeline. an intro into that series. Yeah, but I'm not saying that like you just, oh, and then this happened and then this happened. Gotcha, like gotcha. it definitely deserves its own episode. Yeah. I agree. I didn't realize how, again... I can't entirely blame this on the American public education system because I am an adult now and I had every opportunity to educate myself about this before this point, so I apologize for not doing it sooner, but I didn't realize just how much invasion that was. That was an expansion over indigenous people like I thought that was like straight up in so many ways. It wasn't just mm-hmm. abuse, like taking land away from indigenous people, but like, yeah. So um, we'll do an episode on that. It'll be long. It'll be probably very opinionated. Um, yeah, so, I'm, I'm so nervous to, to cover, like, anything touching 1840 through 1850 because there's just so many convoluted things that happen. Yeah. And, like, basically till the end of the Civil War, I'm just like... So ah. many things happened. So many people were at play. Different ideologies so were at play. So interconnected. Yeah. And it all... Which is why there's whole podcasts just dedicated to talking about, like, the Civil War. Yeah, exactly. It's a huge undertaking. Mm-hmm. Um but maybe we'll be able to take it in small bite-sized chunks. Well, that's kind of what I'm doing today. That's um, true. Because this is connected to is... all of that stuff, too. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Um, so, going into World War II, it obviously wouldn't look so great for the president to be siding with America. To be like, yeah, we're joining America and the Allies. Um, so, it does. you've got General Douglas MacArthur, who's got... if You, you know the name because he was such a huge player in World War II... But he was actually one of the people that participated in the American seizure of the port of Veracruz earlier in, in like, the early 1900s. So it's not, like, there's good, like, there's still people alive that have directly done Mexico wrong that they would have to ally with to join Mm -hmm. World War II with the Allies. And that's not, that's not great that people don't entirely agree with that. Some do, some don't. In the 1930s, that tension is getting even worse with America. And... There is a president who wanted to make a lot of reform uh, named, I'm going to botch this, Lazaro is how you say it, I believe? Lazaro. Lazaro, okay. Um, Lazaro Cardenas, and he basically took the oil industry in Mexico and nationalized it. Guess Mm. who doesn't like other people having power over their own oil? America! (laughs) America doesn't like it when people have control over their own oil. And... Uh, I mean, we've gone to war with people over oil multiple times. Um, so regardless of the tension between them and the U.S., though, they are realizing that, you know, the effects of the World War are going to hurt us as much as anyone else. They're not blind to what's going on. And they had some of that inner conflict taking over sides. At first, they were very neutral in the conflict because there's a notable, I didn't know this, a notable Italian community within Mexico, and they didn't want to declare war on Italy and, like, alienate all of those citizens. And originally... And originally, the communist population in Mexico was also feeling some sympathy to the Germans. But as soon as the Germans invaded Russia, they realized what was really going on, that this is not a representation of any similar ideals. And, you know, they kind of, that's where they start cutting their ties to German support. 
But there are also plenty of people who had been wary of authoritarian power ever since the revolution, and they were supporting the the ideas of the allies early on. They're like, no, this is authoritarian. We don't like what's going on over there. Um, and they were, you know, there's some people, as usual, <clears throat> some people know from the beginning what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Um, so even for countries that weren't directly involved in fighting, it damaged and threatened your trade routes, your production, your selling of the go- of your goods and trades and wares, and all of this, because it comes with the expansion of transportation, not just railroads, but boats and everything. The whole world's interconnectivity of trade mm-hmm. is so, it can collapse on a whim if there's something that goes, it's like when the was it the Suez Canal that got jammed for a couple of days by that one boat that went yes, by? it was the Suez Canal. And it Canal. literally, like, uh-huh. the entire world basically, like, shut down its yeah. trade because that's that's how fragile mm-hmm. the, the trade ecosystem is. So every country is very aware that this war could easily shut down or restructure the entirety mm-hmm. of their trade systems. And that's not good for anyone. That's a huge risk for anyone, especially if you have a lot of imports and exports as your GDP. Um, so as... European countries, if you know World War II, you know how physically destructive it was and how there was efforts to literally just burn fields of, you know, materials and stuff like that to prevent other people from having resources. Um, The European countries are struggling to keep up with production of items that they need. And this is when the U.S. starts producing some of those things. And now Latin American countries are relying on America more as well because the stuff that they used to need from Europe, they have to get from America. So there's this weird, the trade industry is just morphing really fast. Mm -hmm. Almost immediately after Pearl Harbor, Mexico cuts their ties with Japan. They're like, no stop. Uh, What's the term I'm thinking of? Full stop? Full stop, thank you. Full stop. Nothing's going to happen with us. There's no diplomatic connections in it there anymore. I guess it's fair because they're seeing, oh, you can like reach someone over here. You can reach us. And even if they don't support America, that was a pretty, that was yeah. a bad move. I Yeah. Well, because there's also that whole like idea of like separate sphere. Not that's a Spheres of influence. No, but like the, like how, like the hemisphere that America and oh. Mexico is, is like not supposed to mess with. Mm-hmm. The other eastern and western yeah. hemispheres so like the fact that yeah that all it, there was the like lighting, that connection pretty much most of the fighting had been centralized in europe yeah and all of a sudden uh-huh. it's a lot more real it's like for oh people gosh. over here yeah yeah they're bringing mm-hmm. the fighting to us now uh-huh. um and i mean i'm sure i'm sure america would have been very peeved as well if mexico hadn't said like stopped ties with japan after that because yeah. then they would have been like dude you're right next to us like be a neighbor be a buddy even mm-hmm. if we don't deserve it be a buddy you know yeah um, and a few days later, also, I mean, Germany wasn't too hyped that Japan did that either. Yeah, like, no, that was Japan definitely... Japan made that call to bomb Pearl Harbor, and I don't think anyone thought no, that Japan they Japan were... was just kind of doing its own thing at that point, and they had been for a while. But, like, I think everyone was just kind of like, what did you do? Yeah. 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 I've seen a lot of TikToks about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, so... A few days after they cut diplomatic ties with Japan, they also cut ties with Germany and Italy, um, which is a big step. But these are all, you know, Axis versus Allies powers. You can't, mm-hmm. you know, take a stance against one without the others. And they are able, because of these cut ties, to secure the Gulf of Mexico along, you know, where Mexico and America meet. Mm-hmm. I need to be better at saying the United States, not America, because it's all America. Um, 
It's the Americas. And about a month later, there's a conference of foreign ministers that meet. And the Mexican delegation basically states, like, hey, all of us Latin American countries need to be on the same page. We need to be able to work together and make sure that we're mutually keeping each other safe, supporting the same causes, and we need to present a united front. Like, that's that's going into this war. Eventually, it's a, I mean, it's a world war. You see everyone involved in some way, shape, or form. You need to be on the same page. And they band together a little bit. Um, and... Sorry, I literally lost a place in my notes. They <laughs> decide, yeah, we're going to band together the different nations. And over the next couple of months, the Germans do more stuff to earn the wrath of Mexico as well, including, most notably, sinking two oil tankers in the Gulf of Mexico with their German U-boats, hmm. which presents a very clear invasion of, like, okay, Germany's in our Gulf. They're in our trade yeah. space where they should yeah. not be. That directly threatens our ability not just to reach Europe with aid, but to reach our own like you said, hemisphere. Like no one's in our no one's mm-hmm. in our space. No one's in our sandbox yet. We can throw people stuff at people in the other sandbox, mm-hmm. but the minute they throw something back, ah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, on uh, one of those boats was torpedoed. Sorry for that quick glitch. We had a breaking news headline, and we like to check our breaking news headlines because sometimes they're juicy. They're juicy, but also well, like, this time it was imagine, really sad. But well, can you imagine like? There's certain world events that if you caught record of it on a podcast, on a podcast, that it's. I mean, you there's like videos of like streamers and stuff mm-hmm. who get news, mm-hmm. huge news, and it's always for posterity. You're almost like you want record of receiving. No, it. So absolutely. Breaking news headlines, like if it could pops you imagine up, if we were on this podcast when the Taliban took over? Oh my gosh! Like that would ooh. that would have been a lot. Yeah, but, we would probably had to stop yeah. for a little bit and talk about yeah, things we, yeah. yeah so yeah that's why if we ever pause or something and we talk about breaking news it's because we both pay attention to like breaking news headlines yeah um, yeah but yeah so um like i said the germans were not exactly being respectful and those two ships they sank were important not just because the trade was obviously a at threat from the germans but one of the boats that was torpedoed spilled six thousand tons of oil and killed over a dozen of the 35 crew members. The second tanker killed at least seven of the Mexican sailors, and Mexico requested a formal apology and some form of compensation, but Germany refuses. Mm. Germany probably could have held off their, like, the Mexican, like, engagement into this conflict a little longer if they had tried to make some sort of... I was gonna say. Like... I don't know. I, I don't know. Well, if I, I feel like have... at that point, Germany was definitely egging them on. Yeah. Well, and it's like, you can't really say what if with certainty because yeah. this is a very precarious situation, mm-hmm. but they might've, if they had made some sort of repatriation, maybe they could have held off involvement for like another week or so. But yeah. I mean, two ships though, to knock out two ships is, it's a pretty blatant. That's dec- pretty it's intentional. Like yeah. That's, that's intentional. It's like bombing Pearl Harbor almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so Germany refuses, and the president declares war formally against this act of uh, the Axis powers. Mexico joins the Allies on in like May, late May, early June of nineteen forty-two. Around that time, they start getting all their ducks in a row, and mm-hmm. they join the Allies. This declaration of declaration of war also helped convince other Latin American countries to support the Allies more vocally, because like if it can happen to them, it can happen to anyone. Mm-hmm. So there's multiple facets to how Mexico was involved in World War II. There's the industrial production and the Braquero program. Mm-hmm. So as most of y'all know about wartime efforts, one of the side effects in the United States was women entering the workforce. 
as men were leaving for war and leaving the U.S. and their jobs, people began to move up the work hierarchy, leaving women to start taking some of those jobs that are left open with no one to fill them. So a lot of the times it's kind of the, quote, lower level jobs, quote, like, you know, yeah. production line, factories, stuff that's not technically skilled like they didn't have time to go to college and get degrees yeah. and trained in these things before the position it's not like open. management it's definitely like line yeah. workers yeah yeah that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um and this is a huge war effort push it's the big rosie with the riveter you mm-hmm. know very mm-hmm. iconic oh i just popped yeah I, don't I'm you've been hanging now. out with me I'm too much now. oh my god this is okay sorry joey get down joey is oh trying. my gosh are you trying to come sit with me can you come sit with me? They're actually not allowed on couches. <gasps> oh, you can't come sit with me. Oh. Yes. <gasps> Joey! Okay, you know what? It's my couch. He can do it. You just hey, can't do it at home. At Cat's house, the dogs will play. Yes. When yeah. Cat's home, it's like the uh, the opposite the of... The opposite. Well, <laughs> it's also like a $100 Walmart couch in my first apartment. Oh, like, it's... babies. I just don't want to teach them bad habits when they go back home, but at the same time, it's like one time. Yeah, it's like you're spoiled. It's like staying with the cool aunt. She like buys you ice cream. I am the cool aunt. Don't tell your parents. (laughs) So, yeah. Um, They can't cover everything, though. Women can't do all these jobs, especially the agricultural jobs, which are still not socially acceptable for women to be doing, like the hard labor stuff Mm -hmm. a lot of the time, which is funny because a lot of factory work was pretty heavy labor. Yeah. Anyway. In 1942, that make any sense. Uh, a lot of it. A lot of it sense. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. There's no logic there. No, <laughs> it's miso- it's misogynic, misogyny logic. It's like the it's racist misogyny. logic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does it's, not have but to it's make sense. It just misogyny. has to make sense to them. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. In 1942, the U.S. and Mexico reach an agreement. More than 300,000 Mexicans came to America to work the agricultural and railroad jobs that were still mm. left open. Interesting. And this created the Brocaro program, meaning one who works with his arms, which didn't end until 1964. And if you're keeping up with that timeline, that's over 20 years. Yeah. That's well after the war ends. Mm-hmm. And in, the, in those 20 or so years, four and a half to five million labor contracts were created in the wow. U.S. Like... That's an, an almost incomprehensible amount of work yeah. that was done by these people. Um, and unfortunately, it doesn't sit well with everyone because people, this is still such a hot topic debate these days and it doesn't need to be. But with over 25 states taking advantage of that labor, we know that low-level employees in America then and now are still taken advantage of financially. It creates tension because, you know, for a lot of Mexican people, they're looking at this and like, well, like, are we getting compensated fairly? Why are our people doing work over there for them? But a lot, a lot of Americans are also dealing with the, well, you're letting other people in the country take our work and our mm-hmm. jobs. And that's the rhetoric you hear a lot. If you live in the South or in Texas, yeah. you hear a lot. They're coming over to take our jobs. The jobs these people are filling, though... Um, during this Precaro program are jobs that Americans didn't want. Americans aren't willing to do. I think it's really interesting looking at the history of, like, where that concept came from. Like, the demonization of? Yeah, like, they're stealing our jobs. It's like, where are you hearing this? Yeah, well, it's like, if you're, you, you also, it's like the McDonald's thing. When people say, Mm -hmm. get a good college degree, otherwise you're going to work at your McDonald's your whole life. And I'm like... You cannot disparage or demean someone's job and take advantage of it. Absolutely not. Like, I can guarantee you, especially if you're in Texas, that the food you're eating at your market 
is picked by people who are doing mm-hmm. hard work in fields that whether or not they're like like I had, like I don't know how to describe it if they're like migrant workers or if they're mm-hmm. fourth or fifth generation or if they're newcomers to the country like you can't disparage that work they're doing no. they're supplying literally your mm-hmm. ability to eat yeah to absolutely. enjoy the and they're not being compensated fairly for no. it at all yeah so yeah. like trust me guys if americans wanted these job wanted these jobs yeah they would take these jobs there there's jobs open but yeah yeah, yeah. um so huh. This, I can't believe this is still an issue so much time later. It, it goes to show that some things don't change and some of these, like, stereotypes take mm-hmm. decades to dismantle and we mm-hmm. need to be doing better about that. Um, so the minimum wage, wage for these people in the Brocaro program is incredibly low, but there's a promise included that involves food, shelter, water, and basic sanitary needs. And that's what they were promised. They were also promised that they wouldn't be segregated as migrant workers in the places they were staying. Some areas, they did stick to these standards. They agreed to those and they were like, yeah, we'll treat you fairly. Well, well, we won't segregate you, which is the mm-hmm. bare minimum. That's not really fair. That's just not being an asshole. Yeah, um, yeah I don't think we've made it into fair territory yeah, yet. Yeah, we have not. Um, but they did, tr- they did stick to the... Providing basic food, shelter, all of that. Can't say if it was good or bad, but I'm assuming it was still not great. And there are other areas, though, where these contracts were suspended because the Americans weren't holding up their side of that contract. Not a shocker. You want to guess what state had to suspend the program? Is it the state where we currently the are? state where I currently <laughs> am. Denial. Yes, ring, ding, ding. We have a winner in a... Not shocking upset. Absolutely um, not. Texas is where the Brocaro program was put on hold for several years by the Mexican government because they were violating their end of the deal. Uh, There's segregation issues. Uh, providing the food, shelter, and hygienic uh, conditions was a huge issue. The Texas governor knows how heavily they're relying on this Brocaro program and begs them to lift the ban. It's like desperately trying to get them to let migrant workers come back in the state because I don't think people mm-hmm. understand Who's how, governor? At this point, I'm not sure. Not I, sure. I wrote the name down somewhere in here, but I'm not seeing it in my notes now. I don't know. I was just... I, my brain told me it was Ann Richards, but it's no, not. No, 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 no. She was not. later. Yeah. No, no, no. Um, I would know the name if you said it, but... Yeah. Um, it's somewhere in my notes. But yeah, I don't think people realize how much of this state, for all the crap people here give migrant workers and immigrants is built like, off of that it, labor the state could not function absolutely not you could not function if you no. did not have the benefits of their of this labor so you really can't talk bad about it when you're benefiting from it mm-hmm. but yeah um it actually did some serious damage to the texas production and the economy for a while yeah which is why you supply basic human needs to your people um I need to get off this soapbox and keep moving through my notes. Sorry. <laughs> right. uh, a lot of people... <laughs> this is why I show so long, Kat. I know. Because <laughs> we just keep ranting. ranting about how terrible Texas is. Hey, it's relevant. It is. Hey, we're going to um, get to... We're going to have some more of that when I'm talking, great, so... Great, great. Um, and in the long run, it creates this... It's a reliance on labor from Mexico and other Latin American countries to fill jobs, but it's also like this tradition, this almost like strength, this tradition of reciprocal but america is not exactly reciprocating equally but Mm -hmm. this i mean america is relying on them at this point absolutely we we couldn't function without them and we need to acknowledge that 
This is not a mutually beneficial thing. We needed their help and they helped us mm-hmm. at detriment to their self to themselves in some ways. Yeah. Um so that's kind of what's going on in the industrial side of things. On the military contributions, I had no clue this was a thing. I mm. absolutely love it and I should, you know, I should have made this its whole own episode. Maybe I will someday. Um the Aztec Eagles. Mm. Have you ever heard of them? I no. hadn't. Okay, I hadn't Sounds either. like a baseball team. It does a little bit, yeah. <laughs> so, Avila Camacho, uh, the Mexican president at this time. Yeah, Avila Camacho. Um, was originally Avi- saying... <coughs> Avila. It's one L, not two. <coughs> yeah. Okay, okay there's two <coughs> Sorry. Do you have some water? <laughs> Sorry, <it's> my water rock. <laughs> <coughs> oh my gosh. Oh, that was so funny. So, it worked the other day. So I work in this, like, cubicle area, and it has, like, a meeting table there. And it's, like, not just me back there. I mean, I'm usually the only one back there, but um, people can, like, come and go, whatever. It's very open. But someone came in and was sitting at the conference table, and, you know, I was like, okay, whatever, just, like, working. They were there for, like, a good 20 minutes, and then I took a drink of water, and that exact thing just happened. <laughs> so I started coughing, and then they left. <laughs> and I was like, I promise I don't have sorry, COVID. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know who you were, but yeah, <laughs> I no. don't have COVID. It just... I just can't drink I water. I mean, it's not skilled. Just, like, basic motor functions are really hard for me sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> anyway, yeah. continue. Yeah, yeah. But I think, yeah, it's a single L. It's, so it's not the Y sound. Okay, I think that makes Avila. sense. Yeah. Avila Camacho, the Mexican president at this time, sorry if I'm botching that in another way, um, <laughs> was originally saying that they're only going to contribute to the economic and production side of things. He doesn't want to put soldiers on the ground, which is pretty understandable. He wants to be not involved in this as much as possible. Mm-hmm. The U.S. military, however, he did give the power to conscript Mexican nationals that were already in the U.S. so that they could fight with the Americans, which is an interesting little, like, turn of choice right there. Some estimate that the number was between fifteen and 20,000 people uh, who were Mexican nationals that served in the U.S. military. There's a vast discrepancy here, and I mean vast. The biggest numerical discrepancy I know probably except for the uh, estimates estimates on indigenous populations before mm-hmm. uh, colonization. Some reports were saying that they're up to 400,000. So people literally can't agree between two, like 20,000 and 400,000. That's a huge. That's a huge discrepancy. Oh my God. And I was like, how, I literally went back and checked all these sites because I was like, maybe I'm looking at numbers for different categories because they're so right? vastly different. Yeah. No, they were... That's as weird. As far as I could tell, people just don't know, which is weird because they were taking enlisting enlistment records. Yeah. But who knows? Um, a lot of them were hoping for U.S. citizenship at the end of their service, though. It's something, I mean, thousands of them obviously were killed in MI or killed MIA, wounded in combat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm-hmm. So they're making sacrifices alongside Americans, and Mexico said that. They, you know, that they weren't going to fight along, you know, ground. I can't not think of the... Bleh. Sorry. Take two on that. Okay. Um, <laughs> Mexico said that, like I told you before, that military efforts, they, were going, they weren't going to put people on the ground, basically. But they created the Compulsory Military Service Law in 1942. And I think this is because they realized that if you don't have skin in the game, you don't get as much say in the final outcome. And... That's big in World War II. Like, the way they divvied things up after World War II, everyone wanted a say in mm-hmm. what was going on. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, a lot of people didn't like this idea of conscription. Some saw it as a continuation of their efforts during the Mexican Revolution to overthrow authoritarian rule. So they were like, yeah, we did this once. Let me go fight again for another country to overthrow their dictator. But yeah. others are like, this is not our fight. This is not something we want to be involved in. I, I personally don't agree with it, etc., etc. And I think they realized that if they wanted to say in peace negotiations afterwards, if they wanted to be able to say this is what we want from trade afterwards, you know, rights, uh, repatriations, all that stuff, they knew that they had to put some more effort in physically in their fighting forces. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used the... I use the term forces on the ground figuratively in this case because the Aztec Eagles are an air force. I was going to assume that, yes. Yes. The Eagles. Caw, caw, flying. And here we are, Cat yes. talking about planes again. I know. I <laughs> knew it was going to come up. I was like, I stumbled I even... into it. It's not even on purpose anymore. I know, it's just, it's just happening. <laughs> so uh, it's also known as Squadron 201. Um, a.k.a. the FAEM, the Mexican Expeditionary Air Force, the president was adamant that they wouldn't do what Brazil did and send in ground troops. So they just allowed America to do that with their Mexican nationals living there and decided that they were going to get train these flyers. So these Air Force pilots go to train in Texas. Uh, there's air bases here where they trained and were taught how to be pilots, all that jazz, in July mm. of 1944. <clears throat> they ended up training... I wonder if it was Ellington. I don't know when Ellington was I think like, it was near San Antonio. Oh, okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, San Antonio is, if you don't know, pretty big military presence in San Antonio. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. is. A lot of that kind of stuff is out there. Yeah. They end up training more than 300 volunteers, and about 33 of them are pilots. When can... In, in like, so... You know, you have, like, ground support and air support and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So 33 were pilots. The rest were their support system. They were first deployed out to the Philippines in April of 1945. And you can find a full list of, like, ev- the missions they were flying and stuff like that. But it yeah. gets a little bit extensive. So I'm not going to go into that specific of a detail. At this point, the Philippines were not an independent country yet. They were an American, North American colony. Well, mm-hmm. I should say... U.S. colony. A U.S. colony, And yeah. they were supposedly had an autonomous government, but the U.S. basically controlled their foreign policy, what their military did, which is basically like not having any control of your own country. Um, mm-hmm. So they needed help there. The U.S. needed help in the Philippines, and that's where they sent the Aztec Eagles to, to fight with the Japanese troops. They helped by citing the positions of their enemies, destroying uh, enemy military posts, supplying aid for the allies who are doing the land fighting. In total, five pilots from the squadron died in combat, which proves that statistically, percentage-wise, how damn good they were. Yeah. I think that actually only one was shot down by enemy fire. Huh. I think the rest had something, like, almost like accidental. Yeah. Mechanical or ran out of fuel over the Mm -hmm. ocean after Mm -hmm. flying a longer mission or something like that. Yeah. Um... So, after Japan's surrender, the rest of them actually end up returning to Mexico, and they're welcomed home as heroes. Over the months that they were settled in the Philippines, though, they flew many missions. Ended up doing logging, I think, like 2,000 hours of flight time. And they wow. did bombing missions. They provided air support that the U.S. needed. And the, it's it, this was an imperative like, we don't talk about the Philippines a lot when you're talking about World War II. Mm-hmm. But the Philippines and the outlying islands over there 
put the Allies within bombing range of Japan. Absolutely. You yeah, they were really important bases for... Yeah. Yeah. You needed to hold... Mm-hmm. They had to hold those spaces. Otherwise, yeah. they wouldn't have access directly to Japan. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they were ready to... They were probably getting ready to invade Japan if they needed to. And um, they received... The, these pilots received honors both from Mexico as well as the U.S. Air Force and the Philippines because they did some incredibly daring stunts that they weren't even trained to do. Oh, wow. They weren't... It's almost like the Night Witches, who I am doing an episode on soon. Yeah, you are. Because I adore them. (laughs) Um, But there was... I was reading, like, one... I should have uh, block quoted it and read it out to y'all. I regret not doing that. But basically what they were talking about is that they were near a cliff face and they had to bomb below them. And there were some American pilots and some Mexican pilots. And they basically were like, we've got to do this. And we know you don't have training, but we got to try. And so the Mexican pilots were like, okay... We'll do it. And they like crest over the edge of the cliff and just plummet. And you know, when you hit that curve at the bottom and you have to like pull out of your dive really fast, you Mm -hmm. lose consciousness. You black out from the force of the G's. And one of the firsthand accounts was the uh, Mexican pilot saying like, like talking about how he pulled out of it. And he was like, I turned back around and my buddy wasn't behind me. I just knew I blacked out on the curve. And apparently the, the Americans were on the intercom or on the radio going like, these crazy Mexicans, look at them. Like, they, they were, like, shocked and so impressed and just in awe of the fact that they were so daring yeah, and that's trying insane. things they weren't even trained to do just because yeah. they felt like this, like, they could. This was their yeah. chance. So, yeah. Wow. Um, so they, I honestly want to see a movie about this. I don't know. I didn't right? Google if there was a movie, but I'm like, I this would it. be an incredible movie. Right. Um, just keep tuning in here if you're a movie producer for more movie ideas. Yeah, we got some good ones. Yeah, we, we honestly have some good stories. like pretty much every episode sh- we've done. I know, like topic should be a movie. Like honestly, I know. they keep remaking movies about like the same events, and I'm like, I, I know, and there's so, there's many so many things cool in history. stories. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, like that TikTok you sent me about Eleanor of Aquitaine, which obviously we're doing. Yes, here. but like I remember. Um, yeah, talking about her, one of uh, my history professors did like a women in Europe since 1200 class, I think. And she talked about Eleanor of Aquitaine and this, oh my God, this lady. I didn't know enough about her until I was listening to that TikTok. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I just remember my professor like telling us all about her life. And I was like, no way. Like who, why don't we talk more about her? Why is this not a best-selling movie? Oh my God. Anyway, we'll do her soon. But yeah, um, no, there's so many points in history where it's like, I think it's the Eurocentric vision of what things should and shouldn't be. Yeah. And I think it's still got a pretty, I mean, that Eurocentric vision has a hold in a lot of things. It still has a hold in the history industry. Mm-hmm. It has a hold in the film and media industry, but like, yeah, look no further than the Aztec Eagles. They were yeah. amazing. Yeah. So as far as the economy side of Mexico in world war two, Mexico did more than just supply labor and military forces. They also had a ton of physical materials that the war effort desperately needed. Like, Mercury, cadmium, lead, graphite, copper, tons of other stuff. We also relied on their oil, mm-hmm. like to an almost unprecedented degree at this point. We yeah. needed that oil, and America was probably still real pissed that they had nationalized their oil, but America needed it to produce and to function. Yeah. And that made it them one of the biggest providers out of any of the Latin American countries. Yeah. And we've seen this before that when a country is under pressure to produce as much as possible, as fast as possible, like Mexico was at this time period, 
it's basically an industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. Other places throughout history with rapid development, there's like that big boom of economic mm-hmm. development along with the industrial development. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost synonymous when you start producing that quickly. So as the as you know they were forced to produce more and more and more the economy is getting better and better and better mm-hmm. and the mexican um so the site i was looking on said that for a lot of mexican people this is known as the mexican miracle so between 1940 and 1970 the economy grew an average of six percent a year wow which is crazy and during yeah. the actual war between 40 and 46 the national income almost tripled, which wow. is huge. We can, you know, you can contribute it a lot to World War II, but that it gives you that boost and that start. But for them to have that growth, that 6% growth from yeah. 40 to 70, that really says something about how quickly mm-hmm. they industrialized. And yeah, well, I think, I mean, you know, war, war is great for economies. Oh, um, that's literally my next sentence. War is incredibly <laughs> beneficial. <laughs> um, but to, for it to still have those effects into, like yeah. that late is really impressive. I shouldn't say war is beneficial economically. It is beneficial economically when it is not your land that has the yes, fighting on it. that is very true. America and other nations that were supplying mm-hmm. materials were supplying it for money a lot of the time. Like they yeah. were, they were people were buying weapons from mm-hmm. us in mass, and all yeah. we had to do was produce them. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And meanwhile, like the people in Europe, war is the opposite of good for them because they're literally losing losing their lands, their cities, their mm-hmm. infrastructure, everything is everything. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it's real easy to say from our perspective that war is great for economies. Yeah. When we haven't really felt the other side of that issue. Yeah. I um, mean, you see it in the South after um, the, Civil, the War. Civil War. Yeah, absolutely. The economies were, like, screwed. And, I mean, you shouldn't be relying your economies on slave labor anyways, yeah. guys. Like, that's not yeah. okay. Um, I mean, even taking slavery out of the equation, which obviously we should never do, and that's a huge part of it. But, like, just the destruction, the destruction of, of like, Sherman's March wartime. Sea and stuff yeah. like that. Like, you can see what physical uh-huh. destruction does. And, like, yeah, like you said, like, entire communities just ruined. Like, that's yeah. not good for anyone's economy. Yeah. Um, it's not. And then there's also the whole thing about, like, your whole economy being built on slavery. Which, yeah. I would argue... Let's actually, let's do destroy that economy. <laughs> yeah, like, I would like to see what happened, you know? like Actually, let's let's do get rid of that one. Like, oh no, you have to rebuild your plantations and actually do some of the work yourself? And pay people oh, for it? I feel so bad for I'm you. I'm so sorry. <sighs> anyway. Anyway. Civil um, War again. <laughs> yeah. I literally can't stop talking. <laughs> I'd rather talk too much about the injustice of slavery than not address it at all, though. You know what? I... Completely agree. Good. I yeah. figured we were on the same page there, Kaylee. You know what, Kat? If we weren't, that would be problematic. We at this point in our friendship. Oh, I, if you told me at, like you supported slavery, Kaylee, I'd literally throw you out this window. Kat, <laughs> <laughs> it's just like so preposterous to think of me like saying, like in all sincerity, like Catherine. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm not gonna say it because someone can pull that audio clip. <laughs> I know. It's like. <laughs> You need to delete that audio clip, I understand. Oh, no, no, it's fine. I hope that our audience understands that I very much do not support slavery. (laughs) Oh, my God. I've had people, I've met people before who still support the Uh, KKK. Oh, Um, that's that's bad. That's Uh, that's a rough one. Yeah. Um, But, yeah. Yeah. So, Uh, so, yeah. So, yeah, anyway. (laughs) Yeah, we know it. 
even in our own country, how detrimental war can be when it's fought on your own ground. Yeah. But for places that are, you know, supplying some troops and everything, but most of what we're doing is supplying ammunition and stuff that is financially beneficial to us, it's a great way to get out of an economic depression. Which honestly makes me wonder sometimes that whenever the economy tanks, if America doesn't just think, like, let's start a war somewhere else. I, it's been done before. I mean, everyone, I I mean, honestly, most historians agree, like, yeah, FDR had his, like, works projects and everything Mm -hmm. but it wasn't until the war that we really came out of the depression oh yeah and yeah that's like a pretty universally acknowledged fact so like i just popped but (laughs) universally acknowledged that when in times of economic depression america will try to get involved in the war yeah and honestly i've heard of it i feel like i've heard of it happening like throughout history like where countries are like "Ooh, let's start a war yeah Mm -hmm. i mean but yeah you yeah. see the pattern. If people know the pattern, they'll follow the pattern. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, after all of their contribution and war effort and everything, the UN Security Council gives one of the rotating rotating seats to Mexico as a, kind of a gesture of goodwill and a thank you. And that's one of, like, the big legacies. The UN Security Council, that, that that's power to have one of the seats there. And that isn't to say that t- tension with Mexico went away at, like, Everything was not suddenly sunshine and daisies between yeah. North America. As that one kid on Wifeswap says, flowers and sausages. Flowers and sausages. <laughs> yeah. So this didn't magically fix things between the United States and Mexico, but the Mexican military got financial help from the U.S., and they still receive, I think, military training to this day from America. Oh, interesting. I think. Um <laughs> Oliver, like, I can hear Oliver just, like, made a giant noise. He said... (laughs) He'll literally lay down and just be like... (laughs) I think he's upset that I'm not petting him. Anyway, sorry. No, you're good. Uh, Well, I'm not... Uh, Oliver, never feel bad about requiring attention. That is true. You deserve it all. With all that's wrong with him, he probably has, like, some weird throat issues and he can't, like, breathe normally. (laughs) Of course he does. I don't know. I'm I'm guessing here, but it does. It wouldn't surprise me. But oh man. Anyway, Anyway. no. Literally, the last thing I had was the trade relations got a little less frosty, you know, but still not great. I mean, America still sold a ton of their land, but like, yeah, you know, we still have issues to this day. But that's for another episode. Dog. Um, but yeah. So that's that kind of general recap of that what was, was really, going on in World War II with Mexico. That was really good. Thank and you. I know from, um, as someone who also puts notes together for this podcast, that was probably a lot of research. So That was, that was a lot of sifting. Yeah. And so I would like to acknowledge that too, that you did Thank a good you. job on your notes. Thank and you. that was really good. I did not know a lot of that. I think that's, you know, as we kind of talked about, a big part of the story that gets left out a yeah. lot. Because it... I mean, well, at the end of the day, they weren't a major player in World War II. But, like, but like it's the Philippines. still it's like you don't, it's like significant. You don't realize, like, if they hadn't been in the Philippines, what if we'd lost the Philippines? And then yeah. what if we'd lost mm-hmm. our anchor holding us? Absolutely. Against, like, it, yeah. Again, what ifs are fascinating, especially when you're looking at the World War context, because mm-hmm. every country was a domino. And if every country yeah. hadn't fallen how it did, it could have been so much better or, or so, so much, much worse. worse. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think it's good that we're talking about, you know, Mexico's roar, roar, role because like you said even though it was a small one mm-hmm. it could have been huge we just don't know yeah um and I still think it's important to talk about those things so that was really good thank you you're welcome I'm so I'm excited to hear yours because Woo! I 
visited this site pretty much every year because I grew I up there. bet you did. Mm-hmm. I have like, been one time. It was a field time. trip. It was like yep. a almost semi-yearly I field bet, trip. I bet you did. Um, so I know we've been kind of teasing this, but today I'm talking about the Alamo. Which if you're from Texas, you know how big of a thing this is here. Um, and yeah. I'm really ready to hear the perspective from like yes. the Mexican so, Alamos. Um, so honestly, the just as a precursor, there kind of isn't a Mexican perspective per se. It's I mean it's all factual. Yeah. Um, but like, I'm curious, the raw facts of it, how... I think, yeah, so the raw facts of it were, will be kind of where we can have that discussion a little bit more because, you know, there's the Texas side and yeah. then there's the Mexican well, side. Say, when I say the Mexican side of it, I just mean the not sensationalized, romanticized yes. American version that mm-hmm. I grew up with. Yeah. And I do think that some of the conversation I'll have at the end of this little at the end of my notes will be kind of more they were definitely illuminating to me mm-hmm. on kind of the issues surrounding how we treat this event um and it was like in ways that I never really thought of yeah and so that was like pretty enlightening to me but um well we'll just I'll just I'll just read my notes how about that and then we can talk about it as we come as they come up sound like a good plan yeah okay oh I just popped Cat gets onto me when I do that. I get it from my. So I don't know how you make that sound so sharp. I, I get it from like, my mother. Even when I pop, it's like a. No. But you manage to somehow like it's... make it sharp, and it's get like it from my mom. impressive. But I need a little sign to just like. Yeah, no, I know. I need to. It's not. It's for this mic that's very sensitive. It is not the place to do yeah. that. Well, and this is not just me calling Kaylee out. She had earlier literally had to stop because I was going too fast. And was like, <laughs> you got to slow down. So like, right. we, we okay. want each other to call each other out because yeah. we know that that makes it better for y'all to listen to. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, the Alamo obviously is not an isolated event, but rather literally an event in the Texas Revolutionary War. Um, so there's a lot of things that go into the Alamo. So I'm going to start mm-hmm. off with some background that is actually pretty long. <laughs> so, yeah, let's go ahead and get on into it. So San Antonio, Texas was founded in 1718. That's when they say the official founding date is. There were people present before then, obviously, mm-hmm. like Spanish settlers and everything. And then before then, there was indigenous, native yeah. and indigenous population because... Yeah, mm-hmm. um, but it the city claims its official founding date as 1718, and this is when a group of Spanish settlers decide to build a mission in uh, on the banks of the San Antonio River. So um, maybe not on the banks, but r- yeah. around the San Antonio River. This mission is called Mission San Antonio de Valero. Uh, the mission uh, town, so San Antonio itself, um, and the river were all named for Saint Anthony of Padua? Is that how you say that? P-A-D-U-A. Padua? That's not right. Pod- Padua? U-A? Padua? P-A-D-U-A. Yeah. Padua. Padua. I would guess Padua, but that's my... That's I feel like I've heard southern... Padua, but I f- could be literally hallucinating, so... Again, also, yeah. very, I'm a very white girl who grew up in San Antonio, so my, my pronunciation well, comes from words I only know. I think this know. is, like, not anywhere in... Like, Latin America, I think this is... Oh, then like, my guess would actually Padua. be Padua. I'm pretty sure it's... If we want to go back and erase this whole section Yeah, it's 
No, I mean, I don't care. People can make fun of me. Um, <laughs> I yeah, it's either, it's so. in Italy. So he's Padua? a saint from Italy. So I would say Padua. Padua. That's kind of my yeah. guess then, yeah. Um, anyway, so they build the mission. And they also establish a military garrison nearby, which is called San Antonio de Bear. And I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. It's B-E-X-A-R, Bear. And you're from there, so you can correct me on that. Uh, This would later, this military garrison would later become the center of kind of town, the eventual town that would turn into San Antonio. Uh, This mission um, was a fully functioning mission for around 70 years. It served the Catholic community of San Antonio, and it housed the missionaries themselves and uh, the native converts. So missions, just a little, in case you're unfamiliar, Spanish missions specifically were basically Spanish missionary works. And they were um, Catholic, because they were majority Catholic at the time, Catholic um, missionaries that went and settled in various parts of the Spanish colonies in America. So Mm -hmm. from Texas through to California, mainly in California is where we see a lot of the missions today, at least the ones that have lasted. Um, Their key purpose was to convert native indigenous groups to Catholicism. Um, Oh, religious genocide. Yeah, so it's literally, it's very similar to what we know as missionary work. Um, And I mean, I'm assuming... I, I, I didn't look this up, but it wouldn't surprise me if we get the word missionary from missions. But I don't it's know. It's the same root word. Yeah. I don't know if that's, like, where we get it from. I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> so, uh, so in addition to, you know, that being their main goal, um, they also did serve as the religious centers for settlements throughout um, the Spanish colonies in America. And this is kind of, this is what's happening in San Antonio at the time. So in 1793, the Spanish authorities secular sec, wow secularized. So they basically decommissioned all of the five missions that had been in San Antonio um, mm-hmm. since they kind of settled in 1718 in this land. So that includes the one that is home to the Alamo. So in 1793, uh, they I guess stop all the mission work there and then they redistribute the land that belonged to the missions to the residents of the town mission san antonio de valero stood empty until around the uh, the 1800s its next residents were spanish military troops and this is where uh they're actually the ones that give the mission the name the alamo uh, the troops were living in the church of the mission, which stood in a grove of cottonwood trees. And so they gave it the nickname of El Alamo after the Spanish word for cottonwood and also after a town called Alamo de Paras, which was a town in Mexico that many of these troops came or called home, apparently. Okay. Um, so it was kind of like a dual thing there, like how it got the name of the Alamo, because I was like, wait isn't this the Alamo? Why is it not called the Alamo? I was like, what's happening here? Um, So uh, in the early 1820s, Mexico um, is in the middle of their war of independence from Spain. And this kind of meant that the Alamo changed hands a lot. So it went from being occupied by those Spanish troops I mentioned to what is considered, considered rebel forces during the war for independence. And, um, eventually to actual Mexican troops when Mexico won its war of independence in 1821. After, um, so during all this time, it kept, it stayed standing. 
people apparently took pretty good care of it. Uh, and it kept the name the Alamo and it just kind of became its unofficial name. Um, or I guess official name at this point. Um, because, well, I, it's not a mission anymore. So I guess there's something about not calling it a mission. That would make sense to me. Yeah. Probably <laughs> a little more sensitive about it now. Yeah. But that doesn't change what it was. Yeah, exactly. And I don't think it ever became a church again. I think it just kind of housed troops. Yeah. Until what we now know as the Alamo happened. Um, so, blah, blah, blah. So after Mexico won its, um, independence from Spain, a man by the name of Stephen S, Stephen F. Austin comes into play. Good old Stephen. What a boy. So his father, Moses Austin, had actually been trying to cut a deal with what was then the Spanish government to convince them to let American settlers into the region that is now Texas. And... Uh, I, th- I believe his father passed away and sometime during the Mexican War of Independence. And so Stephen F. Austin decides, okay, I'm going to keep continue my father's work. Uh, but this time I'm going to see if I can cut a deal with the Mexican government to allow some Americans to come settle in Texas. So in 1821, uh, the very young government of Mexico makes this deal with Stephen F. Austin. And they allow 300 American families to come into Texas and settle into Texas. Um, 300? 300. Hmm. Which, like... It's not as many as I expected. It's not as many as you expect. But, like, to... For, I mean, for any family to make that trip at that time was still yeah. a big undertaking, so I guess I get it. It's just not as many as I expected. Yeah. Um, so Stephen F. Austin was kind of the figurehead of this thing. He was the one who recruited the families. He was the one who was talking to Mexican government officials at the time, and he set this whole thing up. Part of the deal, though, was that these families had to be Catholic. They were not. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, And this is kind of where the issue starts to happen. Because all of a sudden, for the people who actually have lived in Mexico for generations, it's like a completely different culture coming in and just invading your state. Right. Because, or like where you live. After promising and making a deal... Yeah, that at least they'll have share some culture in common, yeah. you know. Um, so it becomes problematic, especially because over the next de- decade, it's not just these 300 families. Apparently, I'm not sure exactly how the deal worked out, but apparently the 300 families were just initial families. So more okay. and more people came in. Okay. Um, and it got so bad that soon these American Protestant families outnumbered the actual Mexican inhabitants of the region. And that just caused tensions to, uh, they, they, they didn't get along. And when you think about it, it's like a completely different culture coming into, it would be like if, well, one article I was reading compared it to like, if Canada just, like, decided that they were going to invade the United States, but, like, culturally. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we have, like, a bunch of Tim Hortons on the corners and there's, like, mm-hmm. maple leaves everywhere. And there's a difference between, like, oh, they would like to immigrate. A lot of people would like to immigrate and, like, retain their culture. Because mm-hmm. that's part of the discussion here in the South is it's, like, immigration isn't bad. They can bring their culture with them. Yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. But, like, for them to have been there for so long. Yeah, and I think part of it, too, is, like, these families weren't coming in to live in Mexico. These families were coming in to live in Texas. And yeah. that is a distinct 
thing. Yeah. Because they, at the end of the day, likely still considered themselves American. Right. And had no intention on becoming really Mexican civil or citizens. That's a really good point. Um, at the end of the day, they were Texan. And I mean, we see that when Texas, I mean, this whole thing is about Texas war for independence or Texas revolution, whatever. There's a million names for that. Um, but yeah, so, and so... It would be one thing if they just wanted to come and, and live in Mexico, but they don't. And it was very clear from the beginning that Texas was separate from Mexico. Okay. So that was part of the appeal, I feel like, for these families. Yeah. And they never intended on assimilating okay. um, and adopting that culture of the new country that they live in. So, in 1830, Mexico took, st- uh, took some steps to stop the influx of Americans, but... By that point, the damage was done. And so we have this group of uh, people who consider themselves Texans first um, and not Mexicans. And Stephen F. Austin, I I was surprised to hear this because I did not know this, but he really wanted, I guess Texas did not have statehood with the Mexican government yet. Mm -hmm. And he really wanted to establish Texas as a state in the Mexican Federation. Hmm. He wanted this so bad that he convinced, apparently, <laughs> the Texas legislator at the time to just declare themselves as a state without any approval of the Mexican government. And he got thrown into prison for it. I mean... For two years in 1833. Kind of mood. Yeah. Like, that, what? I guess he just... I guess his thought process was, I want Texas to have representation at a state level. Which, like, okay, valid. But that's also, like, but like not... And then his, like, next move was, like, I guess the people there were, like, well, if we can't be a state, then we're just gonna, we're just gonna leave. Hmm. Okay. It's interesting. Listen, as someone who's from Texas, this all makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, but if, I, it fits the vibe. Yeah. If you're from outside of Texas, just know that this makes sense. Yeah. Just know that all of this not making sense, it, it makes sense. cultural. <laughs> yeah. Um... Unfortunately, apparently, we've I was gonna say, always been like this. Not that we agree, not that Kayla and I agree with these cultural mores that Texas is yeah. involved in, but we under, we know. We just know the culture. We've seen them. Yeah. We've seen them mm-hmm. apply the We understand we, the vibes, as Kat said. So, um, while, I popped again, I'm so bad. Okay, while Stephen F. Austin was in prison, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, who was a soldier and politician, in 1834, assumes power of the Mexican government. And it is... I didn't... Because Santa Ana honestly deserves his own episode and all yes, of that stuff. Yes. Um, so I didn't want to go too deep into his background. However, articles did call him a dictator. So not a great guy. Um, from I what I've there's, heard. There's very mixed... Yes. Yeah. If you ask the Texans, he's a dictator. Yeah. Yeah. We don't like no Santa Ana here. Yeah. All right? I say... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, there's two sides to every story, but we're not talking about those two sides right now. This is mm-hmm. just background. Uh, so his first kind of concern, his first order of business is to, he wants to potentially, or he wants to squash any and all potential rebellions. And the biggest one at the time was the one occurring in Texas. So uh, he makes his moves to kind of disarm Texas and... One of one such move to disarm Texas was there was a town called Gonzales, which is about 50 miles from San Antonio, and they were asked to return some cannons. This is October of 19 or what <laughs> October of 1835. Uh, so the 
Texan residents um, of Gonzalez, and when I say Texan, I mean white, the white residents yeah. of Gonzalez, were asked to return some cannons to the Mexican military. So when the Mexican troops showed up to come pick the cannons up... Mm-hmm. Joey, no. Uh-oh, someone's walking by. It's, it's that and the motorcycle together are freaking them out. Oh, so puppies. the puppers are used to being in a house, not an apartment, so they're not used to having, like, people walk by directly outside of their window. Yeah, there's a lot of sounds here. Yeah. My neighbors are also insane, so yeah. there's a lot of... It's sound. okay, puppies. It's okay, Joey. It's okay. It's okay. That's really what's going on out there. I know. I can hear it through my sound-canceling headphones. Yeah, so. this is a lot of rumbling. Anyway. I'm just trying to talk about the Alamo. Right. So uh, when these Mexican troops came to pick up the cannons, uh, the, the residents of Gonzales, the white residents of Gonzales, uh, open-fired on them. And that is the official start of the Texas Revolution. And had... Had they agreed to return the cannons? Mm-hmm. I mean, the freaking military, like, showed up to take them. Well, did the military show up to take them, or had the Texans agreed with... The white Texans agreed to give them back? From what I saw, there was... There was a mutual agreement? I, I feel like nothing mentioned, like, if they wanted to or not. ba 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 Return. So, okay. So, this is what the History.com article says. Uh, 50 miles east of... In October 1835, Anglo residents of Gonzales, 50 miles east of San Antonio, responded to Santa Ana's demand that they return a cannon loaned for defense against Native American attack, I'm not uh, saying uh. that word, uh, by just discharging it against the Mexican troops sent to reclaim it. Okay. So, so it might not have been as consensual. Yeah, they might not have agreed. Either way, though, I mean, it, was, it wasn't their they, cannon. Yeah. It wasn't their, their cannon. their cannon, and, and they're opening fire on... Military. Mexican yeah. military. So, like, yeah, that starts a war. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. That's not great. That's not a... They're not going to respond well to that. No. Um, so, that is kind of when that powder keg, ex- powder keg exploded. And now Texas is in full-blown revolt, which I guess had been coming for some time now, especially when the Mexican government denied its request to be a state. Mm-hmm. Uh, American settlers in Texas proceeded to set up a provisional government under Sam Houston, um, who's also a big figure in Texas history, if you know that. Um, And it's what Houston, Texas is named after, just like Austin is named after Stephen S. Austin. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they did win a few small battles throughout the fall of 1835, uh, but it's not until December of 1835 that we have our main story here, the Alamos. We have arrived in history at the Alamo. (laughs) So in December of 1835, a group of Texan, which I did not know this, but they called themselves Texian during the American Revolution. I did know that. Yeah. I I knew that I didn't, like, I knew it, but I always, like, do you do that thing where you, like, block it out because it makes no sense whatsoever? Yeah, you're like, that's not real. (laughs) Uh, Well, I had, like, a really bad Texas history education. Also... This is shocking to a lot of people outside yeah. the state of Texas. I guess we should talk about re- that. You are required to take a Texas history course. In eighth grade. In, oh, mine was seventh grade. It might be seventh grade. It oh. is seventh grade. It is seventh grade. Oh. Well, yeah. either way, Texas is so full of itself and thinks it's so great for seceding and doing all these other things and starting revolutions and such that you are literally required by common core curriculum in every school, in a public school, to take Texas history for a whole year. Yep. Just like we're required to say the Texas Pledge. 
Honor the Texas flag. I pledge allegiance to, to the Texas, Texas, Texas one, one state, state under God, God one, one and indivisible. Gosh, it's still there. I pledge allegiance to the. <laughs> Um, yeah, so if you're from out of Texas, that is something that happens here. That is the level of what we're talking about. Yeah, here. no. This is how much Texas loves itself. Yeah, I mean, and it's, it's... And sometimes, let's be fair, Texas should. Whataburger, for instance. You're allowed <laughs> to love yourself that much if you have Whataburger. But, yeah. I mean, we're not always Whataburger and French fries over here. It ain't sunshine and date. It ain't flowers and sausages. It is, and it ain't it always flowers, flowers and sausages. sausages. <laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah, no... Uh, one thing about the Texas history thing is, yeah, it's, like, completely ridiculous that we have to spend a whole year on it. Mm-hmm. However, there is a lot more that happens in Texas history than probably most other that. states. Um, I will acknowledge that. But it's still ridiculous. But to have, to like, hold a, a whole, whole year, year on Texas history. It's going to be informed about your past so you can be informed about your future. Yeah. But they also didn't inform us how to do taxes. And I'm like, I would have liked to have taken <laughs> a couple of weeks out of my education to learn right? real life skills. Like, government and economics are, half, are semesters each. Why can't we do that with Texas history yeah. and, like, practical life? Whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, they call themselves Texian, which um, I guess eventually evolved into Texan. But, uh, so a group of Texian volunteers led by men named George Collinsworth and Benjamin Millam seized the fort of the Alamo from the Mexican garrison that was, that had been occupying it. Um, so this is in December of 1835. So just literally a group of volunteers just went and like took the Alamo. Apparently this wasn't like a huge thing. Maybe because Mexican troops had kind of like not seen it as an important it wasn't like a strong base to yeah, yeah to like you know to maintain so they were just able to go grab it and this was a pretty big win for texas and as i said like kind of throughout the fall they had a few small victories but nothing huge quite yet uh by february however sam houston who is who has basically become like president of texas at this point uh began to urge the troops that were in um San Antonio as a whole to pull out due to lack of resources. However, the two men who were in charge of the San Antonio base, their names being Colonel James Bowie and Lieutenant Colonel William B. Travis were like, you know them. If you grew up in San Antonio, (laughs) they were like, no, we're not doing that. And Sam Houston's like, you should do that. And they were like, no. (laughs) So they just decided to stay there. And the number of, troops so bodies in like mexican or not mexican texan like military force that was in san antonio never numbered more than 200 people so they never had more than 200 soldiers on the ground in san antonio at any point even when they called for reinforcements Mm -hmm. um like when they were literally under siege yeah um and (laughs) of course i would be remiss to mention that that 200 did include, infamously, Davy Crockett. Davy, Davy Crockett. <laughs> <laughs> Who, if you don't know him, he was a senator, I believe, from Tennessee. Some sort of politician. Frontiersman. Yeah, he was a well-known frontiersman. He's the guy with the raccoon hat. Um, and he very infamously said, you can all go to hell, I'm going to Texas. I'm going to Texas. Which is hilarious to me because it equates Texas with hell. And obviously, I haven't seen anything more true, temperature and politically. Right. Um, so they're hanging out at the Alamo, for better or for worse. For worse. Yeah, I was um, going to say, we, we know. Yeah, we know what happens now at this point. So, Which is also, I'm just going to say, this is really weird, because, like, 
I, I literally like feel the distinctions and what I've been taught and like, I'm like you talking about like William B. Travis and all these people. I'm like, yeah, William B. Travis. And it's like my instinctual, what I was taught versus right. what I actually believe. Mm -hmm. And there it's crazy. Well, I hear the name David Crockett and I'm like, hell yeah, David Crockett. David Crockett. And then I'm like, probably wasn't a great guy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just crazy. Cause like this whole time I'm like, well, they must've done something like, Santa Ana's forces must have done something to deserve it, and, and, and there were heroes, and the Aloe was heroes, and I'm like, no, Kat, that's what you were taught for so long. Yeah, And yeah. it's that whole thing I mean, of, like, your first response is what you were taught. Your yeah. second response is what you believe. I mean, when you think about the, what is happening, Texas is rebelling, Yeah, and the Mexican military is stopping a rebellion. Yeah. But you hear from Texas, and it's, we were standing up for our civil rights, like, we were fighting for yeah. us. For our state, the land we believed in. Well, it's you, like the land that you invaded and exactly. then decided it was yours. Well, and if you asked if you asked me right now before I heard you talk about any of this, I would have been like, I genuinely can't tell you what right they were fighting for. No. And I would have said like independence. And I'm like, independence from what? A place that it, it wasn't literally theirs? is just independence. Yeah. yeah. And it goes back to the point I made earlier about how th these people never were gonna live in Mexico. Yeah. They came to live in Texas. Yeah. And, and that manifest destiny. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, and it's just crazy because, like, it's so obvious to me how uh -huh. how untaught I was about this. Yeah. And honestly, like I said, like, my Texas history, yeah, my Texas history education was not good, even by Texas standards. Um, so I, I didn't learn a lot of this. So it's really interesting to kind of go back and, like, look at it. Like, I knew the mm -hmm. outline, but I never was sat down in class and, like, taught well, this. Well, it's also that emotional thing, too. Yeah. It's about getting an emotional reaction. So, like, I couldn't tell you much more about the Alamo, honestly, than, like, you're telling me now. Yeah. But, like, I... But the fact that as a young child, I was taught to feel a certain way about this. Mm -hmm. Knowing the facts or not, or being able to explain it or not. Oh, absolutely. It's like, it just creates a visceral reaction when mm -hmm. someone talks about the Alamo. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I have to unlearn so much. Yeah. So, on February 23rd, 1836, so they've held the Alamo for around two months at this time, General Santa Anta, well, General Santa Anna, <laughs> accompanied with anywhere from 1,800 to 6,000 men, depending on what report you're reading. That's a pretty big gap, too. Uh, we got the gaps today. Yeah. I'm like, I don't know how many men there were. There were 6,000. Wow. <laughs> they were getting us for 13 days. Mm -hmm. uh, so they began the 13-day-long siege on the Alamo, where the 200 Texan troops were fortified in mm -hmm. San Antonio. Um and this is just, you know, again, the Mexican military just, like, putting down a rebellion. So, like, you know. Uh, despite the odds, these 200 Texans managed to survive for 13 days in the Alamo. Apparently, um, pretty good construction in 1718. Yeah. Uh, these walls lasted. And it actually, they probably would have lasted longer. But on the morning of March 6th, the Mexican forces broke through the outer wall of the courtyard and overpowered the Texans. Mm -hmm. So those walls were really what we were keeping yeah. like them separate. And the articles I read say it was a weak point in the wall. Yeah. So um, they must have really been built well <laughs> yeah, to survive a 13-day-long siege of the Mexican government. That's pretty impressive for an old building like that. Uh, Santa Ana did... And this is where a lot of that, like martyrdom comes from yeah is the fact that santa Ana ordered his men to take no prisoners which was a bad 
call. Yes. I, I like because I, that fully turned this event into, into a martyrdom, a martyr event, and rally, like the whole re- rest of the Texas Revolution I'm sure rallied Santa's, around this event. Santa Anna's reason, Santa Anna's reasoning was. If we don't literally just take them out now, they're going mm-hmm. to keep doing this over and over, and yeah. it's not their land to do this. But it's one of I, those, like, catch-22 things. But, like, at the same time, there was no reason to literally, like... Yeah. Because they were outnumbered. They were... I mean, even at 1,800 versus 200. Yeah. That is an insane out... Like, it's 9 to 1. And especially when you're stuck on the inside, you're cornered. You yeah. Know? Once they're in... <laughs> Ollie, you get them, buddy. It's like someone on the road way out there. He's like, I gotta get up. I gotta chase him. Oh. Um, so only a handful of Texans inside the Alamo were spared. Most famously was a woman by the name of Susanna Dickerson and her infant daughter. And they actually were spared as a message to um, the garrison camp in the town Gonzales that was about 50 miles away as a warning against future rebellious acts from the Texans. We did learn a lot about that. Yeah. Yep. Um, and you know, not all the losses were on, uh, the Texans side. Apparently they put up a pretty good fight. Uh, reports say that any Mexican or that anywhere from around 60 to 1600 men, wait, 600 to 1600 men on, uh, in the Mexican military did die during this conflict. Okay, so that's built a, to be an effective force. Like, yeah, like, that they is fortified true. fortified best they could. Yeah. So they're shooting people probably from the top of the walls. Like, yeah. Higher ground does mean a lot, especially when yeah. you're in the flatlands, like yeah. San Antonio. Yeah. So not, so the Mexican forces definitely lost a lot of people too. And I think that's a big part of people leave that out too. Cause 600 mm-hmm. men is, that's a lot. Uh, it's a lot of men. Like, yeah, they weren't, cornered and slaughtered but but it's a lot it's of a big loss yeah just protecting their the land they own mm-hmm. and so that is what happened at the alamo and that moment of martyrdom is what gets transformed into this big piece of texas like iconic history and i firmly believe this is one of the best examples of history as told by its victors absolutely because this would not even be a discussion on the map yeah it would be like eventually, a eventually texas hadn't found its hadn't mm-hmm. gotten independence from mexico and joined the u.s yeah. mm-hmm. and it very quickly became a cultural moment to texans so it became a it, it tra- got transformed into the symbol of resistance for the Texas Revolution, and in the final battle at San Jacinto, which I live like ten minutes from there, my parents do at least. Uh, Texans forces Texan forces actually shouted "Remember the Alamo" as mm-hmm. they defeated Santa Ana and his troops. So like very quickly, and like the Texas Revolution was not a very long battle. No, it was uh, like less than a year. It was short. I'm pretty sure. I'm not sure the exact time, um, but it was short. Yeah, right around a year, I'm, I'm, or like maybe two years. But very quickly, they adopted this, this the Alamo as an iconic piece yeah. of Texas culture, and we get the "Remember the Alamo" slogan as part of this whole battle. So if like if you are from Texas, you know that like the Alamo is huge. Yeah, it's a big deal here, and. Uh, the idea that it represents of one of like 
again, martyrdom against the tyranny of, like, government and standing up for independence mm-hmm. and everything is something that has persisted in Texas for a long time. And if you know anyone from Texas, they, even to this day, even though we've been, you know, American for a long time, mm-hmm. people are still like, nah, we're Texan. And it's just a very interesting mix of is, ideologies here in Texas. Yeah, which is also why if you, this is a little more niche than other white supremacy groups, but there are Texas secession groups still. Oh, absolutely there are. And they use are. the Alamo quite often as uh-huh. a rallying cry of like, we we got our independence yeah. once, we, we can do it again. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've heard, even with my own family, like, it, it not being a serious thing because like no one in my family has the means to have Texas secede. But like I've sat and like listened to my dad like be like we could get Oklahoma to join us and probably New Mexico and definitely Arizona if oh, we damn, ever wanted really? to. Yeah, like oh well, I'm no one in my family. Yeah, no, like I know people who have thought about yeah. Texas just leaving. Yeah, um, and so it's definitely not something that is never not at the forefront yeah. of... And my dad's not a white supremacist. No, 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 no. And I, I think a lot of... Well, I don't want to say a lot. i are white supremacists. Yeah. I'm just saying that, like, you hear about niche groups in Texas, and you yeah. hear a lot about white supremacy, and you hear less about secession movements. Although, there are some secessionists who are very into the white power movements. Mm-hmm. But like, oh, absolutely. I think anything that deals with, yeah, like, government authority... linked. Yeah. But, like... I mean, there's overlap, but like, it's almost like if you think about extremist groups in Texas, you think about cultural, like racial extremist groups, not necessarily secession groups, but secession groups have been growing a lot lately. And my dad, again, it's not a secessionist, but it's just, it's, he's an average Texan. And for him to like have those thoughts of like, yeah, we could do it. it. It's, it just goes to show how much of a thing it is in Texas. See, I've actually never met anyone who's a true secessionist. My dad's not a secessionist. Well, no, like, like, that's the thing. Or even, like, talks about it. Oh. I've never actually well. met anyone who postulates. <laughs> except for maybe that... Oh, no. Maybe one person that we knew in undergrad. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. 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 Um, but uh, just as an example... And, like, again, my dad is just a normal... He's not an extremist in any yeah. form. But just the fact that he is, like, no, we could do it. Yeah. It, it just... It, again, it goes to show, like, how present and how salient... That's the word... It is in, yeah. like, Texas culture. Um, however, the Alamo, as, as Kat's been mentioning, in Texas, like, popular romanticism and... There's whole ass movies about this. The kind of mythology around the Alamo is extremely, extremely dramatized. We have all of these ideas of, like, someone, what's-his-face, drawing a line in the sand mm-hmm. and... Um, Davy Crockett, like, going down in a blaze of glory. And, you know, we have these legends that came out of that event. And historians are finally in a place where they're like, wait, let's take a step back. And let's actually consider what happened that day. And so that's kind of where we're at culturally. And one of these myths that kind of really seized the popular imagination around this event was the like I said, the con- the thought that Davy Crockett went down in a, a blaze yeah. of glory. And this is actually from when John Wayne plays Davy Crockett in the movie The Alamo in 1960. Mm-hmm. That's where we get it from. It's not yeah. really what happened, but it's just like, oh yeah, people are like, yeah, he did it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but like, we have a lot, a lot of eyewitness reports from Mexican military people that were there and he definitely was surrender- surrendered and then executed. Like he did not... 
go down yeah like he fully just surrendered was like okay they all went down yeah no and that's what we're all talking everyone went down fighting but like when you have we'll we'll cut in the middle when you have four thousand troops coming at you it's like you and 10 other guys you're like okay yeah yeah yeah. like one way or the you know like (laughs) um so we have this kind of really dramatized and idealized version of events slap him not not slapping i do not mean to slap my dad i just meant like Stop him from licking my couch. Give Don't lick the mood. couch. Don't lick the couch. Sorry, I I'm never, Cat does not slap I'm her not dogs. Advocating for <laughs> absolutely not. Anyway, she prefer. I just make him a little like. Whoop. Yeah. No. And don't Whoop. worry, he's fine. I just gently. A little pet is the word I'm yes. looking for. <laughs> Watch Peta come after me for this. All right. Know. God. It's no one else we pissed off today. Just Peta. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'm about to get into it. So okay. there's a conversation to be had around whether or not this kind of really dramatized version of the events around the Alamo matters. Like, who does it hurt that we have this dramatized version of events? That we have this, like, it's such an iconic thing. And that would be my question before I did my research today. Is like, okay, I know it's super dramatized, but, like, at the end of the day, is that necessarily a bad thing? Like, yeah, sure, it just gets a lot of Texans going and, like, all this kind of stuff, but, like... Is it really affecting anyone in a negative way that we have this like kind of idea of this idealized version of what happened here? I would say yes. And I guess I just never like put much thought into it. Mm-hmm. But like I said, it wasn't until I did notes today where I was like, oh, yeah, yeah no, that's definitely problematic. Um, yeah. And so let's get into it. So I actually read a really great article um, from Time Magazine. It's called, We've Been Telling the Story of the Alamo Wrong for Nearly 200 Years. Now it's time to correct the record. Uh, and... Stop? No, no, no. Sorry. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> okay, sorry. I thought you went... <laughs> oh, no, sorry. <laughs> um, so I pulled this quote from it because I... It's a quote from a professor that they interviewed um, about this topic. And I... Since it's a direct quote, I didn't want to, you know, paraphrase. But... So this professor, uh, his name is Andres Tijerina, who um, was a history professor in Austin, says, The way I explain it is the Mexican-Americans in Texas are brought up, even in the first grade, singing the national anthem and the Pledge of Allegiance and all of that. It's not until the seventh grade that they single us out as Mexicans. And from that point on, you realize you're not an American. You're a Mexican, and you always will be. The Alamo story takes good, solid, loyal, little American kids and converts them into Mexicans. And so we see... Oh, wow. It's kind of... Because even if I had, like, taken a time to, like, step back and be like, is this problematic, you know? I would not have considered that because it's not my experience. And I think that's why it's so important to, like, have these conversations because that thought would never have occurred to me. Yeah, I wouldn't have either. It's, I'm yeah. glad you found something from a person who's experienced that. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think this guy, especially as a history teacher or a professor, he's seen it happen to generation after generation yeah. of Mexicans because it's true. Because all of a sudden, these people who I'm surrounded by fought a war of independence against my country. Yeah. You know, and, like, I can't even imagine what kind of, like, how alienating that no, would feel. yeah. Even, you know, like he said, you grow up texting, you grow up singing the national anthem, saying both pledges in the morning. Right. And then all of a sudden you're other just because, you know. Yeah. And then um, it, you must, I don't want to speak for anyone, but I would almost feel like I don't belong in either place then. Because if yeah. you've always had an American identity, 
and all of a sudden you're like, no, I'm, I'm not. But yeah. you also didn't grow up thinking, you feeling completely connected to that mm-hmm. Mexican identity either. That's got to be so confusing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so that is a, a huge thing that I, again, would it would not have occurred to me because it's not my lived experience. Yeah. Um, but I, I was like, wow, okay, like that's, that's definitely intense, yeah. a big reason why this stuff is problematic and affects people on a daily basis. Right. Um, because if, because I was like, it's, you know, it's the Alamo. It's, it's harmless. People are super into the Alamo. Okay. Yeah. Say, remember the Alamo. It's, you know, it's a thing. Mm-hmm. It happened so long ago. Like who does it really affect now? Mm-hmm. And it, this is who it affects, you know? Yeah. Um, and in addition, the story of the entire Texas revolution almost never, never mentioned slavery. Yeah, you are correct. Like, never, never. Never in this context and growing up, learning about the Alamo or the Texas Texas independence, did I learn about slavery. Yep. Not not once. And I guarantee you, almost every Texan has the same experience. Yeah. they It just doesn't get talked about. And even though it's definitely a major factor, because Texas had slaves mm-hmm. before and after. Yeah. And it was huge. And so, like, <laughs> I was, we're talking about a lot about the Civil War earlier, but, like, that is such a huge thing that I just you know, I've been talking for 40 minutes now and don't have time to cover Texas and slavery and the Texas revolution because that deserves honestly its own episode too, or at least part of an episode in connection to like the civil war and everything. Um, But like the fact that it just, it's never mentioned. It's just so beyond because it was there. Yeah. And I just don't understand how people can think like, oh, we don't have to mention it. Well, I think that is always... If you'd ask me what the danger is of, you know, just creating this stereotype, this, like, romanticism of the Alamo, that's what I would have told you is the danger. Yeah. Of of giving credit, like, romanticizing something in and of itself can be dangerous because it yeah. gives people, it gives an event a power it does not deserve and it cannot hold. People have to give it that power. And when you give people the power to give things power, yeah. they can warp them. And That's then true. all of a sudden you aren't acknowledging the truth behind it. And it's mm-hmm. like it's like any it's like the lost cause of the South. Yeah. It gives people this background to believe we were right. It gives them this sen- this false sense of self righteousness. And that's what I think the Alamo the one of the biggest yeah. risks is because growing up, I'm personally experiencing that as we yeah. talk. Like every time I think about the Alamo, I have to deconstruct that a little more and I realize I was never going to use the Alamo as a rallying cry against anything. I was never going to do anything extremist and use the Alamo as backing for it. Mm -hmm. But there are plenty of people who do. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's kind of where I, when approaching this topic, was coming from. Because I didn't have that kind of indoctrination, again, because my school was a joke, at least history-wise, in middle school. But, um, like... (laughs) Like I told you, he's weird. Oh my god. Uh, So, like, for me, the Alamo, honestly, has never been much more than a meme, you know? Yeah. In, like, my experience. So, like, I would have been like, okay, so what's the harm in, like, having it on a few shot glasses at the H-E-B? You know? Like, that's not a big deal. Who is that affecting? Um, But, no, that's a great point you have, too, of, like, for me, that's what it is. But for other people, it's, like, literally... It's giving them a weapon yeah. that they can use against. Yeah. Them. Or it's lighting a fire saying like, oh, we, we did it once. We can do it. You know, dangerous things yeah. like that. Um, so conversations, as I kind of mentioned, historians are kind of taking a step back in reevaluating how 
the conversations we're having about the Alamo and like what actually happened there, what's the history of it. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the more recent examples of this, a book actually, it was published on my birthday this past year, oh. June 8th, 2021, when I turned 23, <laughs> was a book by the name of Forget the Alamo by three men, three um, Texans. Their names are Brian Burrow, Chris Tomlinson, and Jason Stanford. And this book, its whole goal is to correct the narrative around the Alamo and take a more objective look at its place in history and uh, on the effects of Texas history and how the state has developed as a whole. Mm -hmm. Uh, There is a really great NPR interview that you can go listen to. It's about 30 minutes um, with one of the authors. I believe it was Brian Burrow. Um, That they kind of, you know, walk through the process of like why this book exists and uh, why they thought it was valuable and important. Um, I did include some quotes from that interview because not everyone has $32 to go buy this book. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, Brian Burrow says, quote, one of the reasons that it matters most having this conversation about the Alamo, mm-hmm. and this will echo what the professor said earlier. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one of the reasons that this matters most is that Latinos are poised to become a majority in Texas, according to census data. So if there's ever been a time to be a robust civil civic conversation about this, about the place of the Alamo in our history, about Texas history itself, we hope it is now. Um, and then a little while later, he gets more into kind of what the professor was saying of like, so this is um, the interviewer, I guess, had asked uh, how Mexican Americans were on how So the in their little write-up on the interview they did, mm-hmm. this section was broken into on how Mexican-Americans were largely written out of Texas history. So this is a quote from um, Brian Burrow again. So he says, The Tejanos, who were the Texicans' key allies, and a number of which fought and died at the Alamo, were entirely written out of generations of Texas history as it was written by Anglo writers. This was mirrored, mirrored very much in, kind, in the kind of ethnic cleansing that went on after the revolution, in which hundreds of Tejanos were pushed out of San Antonio and Victoria and existing towns. Their lands were taken, laws were pa- passed against their ability to marry white women and hold public office. Um... That's something we definitely didn't learn about in school. Yeah, absolutely not. And again, like this book, like, you know, I didn't have time to read a whole book for this, but like just having these conversations for the first time. Yeah. It's insane, you know? Um, And so this is another section from the interview and it says, so the title of this one is on how the Anglo-centric narrative of the Alamo history has affected Latino kids. So quote, another quote from the author, uh, quote, Mexican American kids can grow up in Texas believing they're Americans with a statue of liberty and all of that until about seventh grade when you were taught in effort, in essence, that if you're Mexican, your ancestors, your ancestors killed Davy Crockett. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like the original sin of Texas, of the Texas creation myth. It has been used just anecdotally for generations to put down Mexican Americans, a big beefy white guy going up to the me- the little Mexican guy and punching them in the arm saying, remember the Alamo, that type of thing. To an amazing degree, maybe because the Texas media is still dominated by Anglos as well as the Texas government, that viewpoint has never really gotten into the mainstream, has just never really gotten into the mainstream. And by and large, anytime you've had any type of Latino voice come out and question the traditional Anglo narrative, they've been shot, shouted down. Um, so I think this would be, I would love to read this book. I think we're, it's one of, it's our, readings one of our readings for our class. So I'm really excited to get into that and yeah. talk more about this topic um, because it's amazing to me that it's taken this long for 
And I'm sure there's been articles published along the way, and that's the fault of academia and historians, because I'm sure there has been Latino historians who have talked about this. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm sure that this conversation, as the author says that, and by and large, anytime you've had any type of Latino voice come out and question the traditional Anglo narrative, they've been shouted down. And that's absolutely true. And because they're already, it, it, it almost discredits, it sucks because it almost feels like you're discrediting them because there's, mm-hmm. it's like that thing when you're like, oh, you're just saying that because you're white. Oh, you're just saying that because yeah. you're Mexican and you don't want to feel bad. You're about just saying that because you're a girl. Yeah. And, and it's easier to shut them down than to uh-huh. listen to their experiences and what this has done to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you want to read more about this topic if you are Texan and interested in exploring kind of that Texas mythology and the damage it has done to all of us honestly Mm -hmm. um, then I would recommend this book I think it's fairly well received I mean it has a very low approval rating but that's just probably because people it's the shock value of the title um and actually in connection to our field museums Mm -hmm. um Kat, you know a little bit more about what happened with this than I do, but I believe the Bob Bullock Museum in Austin, which is the Texas State History Museum, oh, um, yeah. they attempted to hold a author talk with yep. the authors of this book mm-hmm. um, because as any good museum will... You, you, are, you should... You should. Present multi-sides to every... Exactly, and this is a pretty dramatic book on Texas history. One of the, probably the most dramatic books that's been released in recent memory. So they're like, yeah, we're going to talk about this. And it got so much kickback from literally everyone that I think, was it Abbott that was like, no, you can't do this. It was someone high up in Texas government. That was like, it might've been Abbott. I I would not put it. I would not put it past Abbott. Um, Someone high up in, in Texas government had because they were going to go through with it even despite yeah. like the outrage they were getting because that's your job that's as you a museum. museum absolutely and i think it was really honorable and i'm pretty sure it was abbott i could be completely wrong somewhere high up they sh- they had to come in and say no and the bob Bullock museum had to because it's texas it's state it, funded so they had to cancel that event but that's just it's frustrating because it's time for these conversations to be had, but so many ideas or so many people are so resistant to that idea. Um, And criticizing something does not mean you do not love it. It Yeah. Absolutely not. The faults of it so that you can I'm literally wearing, you're wearing a blue bonnet shirt. I'm literally wearing a shirt that says it's a Texas blue bonnet shirt. So like it, I grew up here born and raised, you know, my, my intent on criticizing Texas is so that we can never do that again. And we can better, and we don't fall prey to these misconceptions and these ideas. And we can find better equality. We can find, yeah. hopefully, someday total equality and acknowledge history and its raw facts for the people that it hurt in the process. Yeah. And that's what everyone should do with your country, Absolutely. with your state, with your city, with your mm-hmm. personal... Like, your... And there's parts of that that Texas mindset that are really valuable. It's like, yeah. should I think that we should always question authorities? Absolutely. Yeah. We can't just lay down and take it. Yeah. However, people take that and run with it and they... To be literally, I won't listen yeah. to any governing body, mm-hmm. even if they're doing stuff for the good of yeah. the community. Yeah, exactly. Or I don't agree with this governing body, so I'm so going to... I'm going to yeah. throw a fit. Um, and claim it's, you know, suppression and all yeah. that stuff when it's really, you just don't like it. But yeah, so it's an interesting conversation to be had and... Um, and it can be hard. 
it can be really hard. Like, it's hard for me to sit here sometimes and listen to that stuff and be like, okay, like, I know I need to deconstruct this stuff. But there's still, like, that spark somewhere deep, that it's like, slightly uh... mo- like smoldering coal in the bottom of the fire that's like, but but remember the Alamo, remember it. And then I'm like, yeah. you can remember it and acknowledge it and still know that piece of history and mm-hmm. just apply it better. Absolutely. And I do I think it should be forgotten? No. no. And, like, it's still a key part in Texas history. It's a major event in Texas history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, again, it's part of history. And but we don't need to be using it as a sign of superiority in modern. No, exactly. What's really funny, on a lighter note, as a way to kind of close out here, um, when Texas, on September 1st, when all those BS laws went into place in Texas, uh-huh. I saw a tweet that said... It said, I'm forgetting the Alamo on purpose today. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. Retweet. <laughs> Listen, it's a good joke. Great joke, Great even. joke even. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Well, and hopefully I didn't offend literally one between here and Houston. Uh, literally everyone between here and Houston. But Well, and if we did offend you, like... I mean, I'm hoping that we can introduce some of this I'm hoping that I did that in a democratic way. Well, I'm hoping that we can, like, introduce some of these ideas and doubts to you in a comfortable, safe space where you can pause and, you know, think about things and keep listening. And if you stopped listening because of something, then you probably aren't listening now and you aren't going to hear this apology. But, like, that's part of what we want to do, too, is, like, help people feel comfortable with history. Mm -hmm. Comfortable enough to come to your own conclusions you obviously know ours and even if you come out of this not changing your mind that much yeah it's good that you hear other people's opinions too and that's what we yeah. want to do is we want to create I mean, space for self-doubt questioning and then absolutely consideration yeah and i mean as far as like dramatic changes and perceptions of history i feel like this was not that dramatic yeah it's only that big and life-altering if you like grew up in san antonio <laughs> Yeah, and maybe that's why Kat's... <laughs> that's why I'm dying she's, she's feeling it a little bit more. I've only seen... I've only been to the Alamo once, but... Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I hope I did that in a way that wasn't offensive. I just feel like there's a lot of parts of that narrative that are not talked about and frankly ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, that, yeah. I was, not teach- th- I was not taught the context that these were basically like people who came into Mexican territory mm-hmm. then refused to like yeah fit by like to no, they, the contract they had signed mm-hmm. and, and then decided they wanted the land to declare independence to join the US. Yeah, and that's that I I was very blessed with a very woke AP US history teacher, Mr. C, shout out to you. You're the reason I'm here today. Um and he he took the time to explain stuff like that to us. Yeah. And so I I'm very grateful that I have that background and kind of know, because it's true. He was like, these people, they didn't want to move to Mexico. They wanted to move to Texas. Yeah. And they did. And they were never at any point Mexican. They were always American. Yeah. Living in Texas. And that's where the issue is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This is your, this has been your substitute CRT for the week, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, I mean, and at this point, if they're still listening to us, it's because they know our stance on this stuff. Absolutely. And we'll be critical on it. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. We had a very, very narrative episode today, but we're hoping that... Yeah. If you're from Texas like we are, maybe it... Yeah. I mean, uh, honestly, this could just be like a huge deal to us and everyone else is like, whatever. (laughs) Just get the second half of the episode. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not going to listen to the Alamo. (laughs) 
Um, anyway, well, you did great today, Kat. You did fantastic. Thank you Thank for you. helping me deconstruct some things and understand more fully what I've been idolizing the past 24 years, of my, 23 years of my life. Yeah, don't we all? Yeah. It's part of being in the state we, we currently are. In the place where I currently am. Yeah. Anyway, side, y'all. If there's other stuff you want to uh, hear about, just tweet at us at T-I-N-A-H-L podcast on Twitter. That goes for, you know... Anything you can fit into 280 characters or, you know, more... If you want to hear more stuff about Hispanic Heritage Month and you've got, like, a really cool prompt, we kind of have yeah, a plan. But, honestly, like, hit us with that. Yeah, hit us up because it's really frustrating because so much of Mexican history that apparently the internet sees as valuable is in connection to United States. Yeah. But I would really love to see some more... It's just because we learn American history. Yeah, and we're trying. And we're trying. But I would like, love to do... That's why I did Katie Gerardo last episode, because mm-hmm. I was like, I want to do something that's Mexican. I want to do something yeah. that his Hispanic heritage. Yeah. And she did end up being have connections to the U.S. eventually. But, like, yeah. you know what I mean. Well, and our friend kind of, when we told her what we did last... And, she, and she's she's Mexican. She was like, mm-hmm. y'all chose the most basic. And I was like, you know what? I chose Frida Kahlo, which I chose her because she has, like, LGBTQ visibility and disability mm-hmm. visibility and all this other stuff. But you're right. Like... I only scratched the surface level. I picked someone who everyone knows. Kaylee picked someone a little more... Like, yeah, I mean, I I was... Less known, but I went for obvious catches. So, like, th- obviously, we don't know the history as well as we probably wish... I'm not speaking I, to you. I no, I, I wish... More. I wish I knew more. So if Absolutely. if there's something you want us to talk about or learn mm-hmm. about, let us know. Tweet yeah. at us or... Email us. This is not a history lecture at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, I mean, part of this... I mean... First episode, we talked about, you know, we're two white girls and yeah. we were taught a very westernized version of history. And we know that. So we would love to hear mm-hmm. if you just know of like a cool person from Mexican history or any Hispanic history heritage, like, please let us know. Yeah. Um, we, we, we would we would love we to that. because we don't have that perspective. Um, yeah. And we always want to be better. Exactly. So anyway, y'all. Help us out by leaving us an Apple review. Um uh, Every review you leave helps one more person. Um, forget the album. <laughs> no, we can't say that. <laughs> helps every person realize that the whole line in this no, 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 is a no, no, total no, no, myth. No, 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 no. I know. Every Apple podcast review you leave gives me one more look at Oliver. I knew you were going to say something about Oliver. Of course. How could I leave him out? Yeah, he's, he's the star of the show today, at least. So thank you all for listening. <sighs> thank you so much. And it's been great hanging out. This has not been a history lecture. Bye. Bye.